There's, uh, not only did all, did all that happen, but we want to show you a couple other pictures. This is from our group, and they were able to celebrate a few baptisms up there. So uh, we can uh, celebrate that as well, of a su- couple of students who made proclamations of their faith in Christ and, that, and uh, through baptism as well this week. So thank you for those of you who send your, your sons and daughters, but also for those of you who, um, we know a lot of you contribute to scholarships to make it a little more affordable for others, and we want to thank you for that. Um, who doesn't want to be involved in youth ministry after watching that, right? How much fun does that look? I um, am going to see if I can go next year. Seriously, I love that. So uh, we really, here at Seacoast, really believe in our kids and our youth, and we think that we, this is so worth it for us to send them and to see the life change that happens. So um, I'm, glad, I'm glad they had a great trip. They got back. And uh, we want to, that's why we showed it here in the main service. We want to celebrate it because uh, we love what God's doing in their lives. So, well, welcome. Good to be here with you. Uh, today, it is 4th of July weekend. As we mentioned earlier, um, yesterday, we were kind of having chore day in the morning. It was Saturday morning and, and we were all um, kind of cleaning up the house and stuff, and I got distracted. I, I clicked on a baseball game. It was early in the morning. There was a game on. It was my favorite team, and, and so I, I kind of got drawn in. I sat down. And I started watching the game, and my golden retriever was with me watching the game, and, and everyone else was doing chores. Was, that's what my wife reminded me of, and, and said, do you notice something different going on here today from you and everyone else? And, and I, was try- I explained to her, I'm, I'm celebrating America I'm watching, I'm watching baseball, I'm sitting with my dog, and, and she said, that doesn't cut it. So anyway, but, um, so I tried getting a good start on the, the holiday weekend, but, uh, so good to be, I love to start it off with you as well here today. We're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. Now this week, I'm really excited to share this, because when, originally I wasn't on the schedule to speak this weekend as a teaching team, we were get, gathering earlier this week, and, and we kind of looked at it, and for the sake of schedules and stuff, it just worked out better for me to, for, for me to teach, we switched some things around, and I actually am very excited that that worked out, because I love this passage, and it's an important passage, it's something we talk about often here, but it's, it bears repeating time and time again. And the theme that we're looking at today is, where do we find our significance? Where do we find what gives us our value in life? And, and it's one of those things that we default to all the time of looking in other places. But today the theme as we look in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us, as he's writing this letter, he gives a really strong case for the reminder to find your significance, to find your hope and who you are in the person of Christ and then find him no other place. And, and so that's what we're going to look at here today. So I want to pray as we get started. Join me. God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you for your word. I pray that now that my words would be your words. And in a room like this, there's people coming from many different places. There's some here here today with great joy. There's some with heavy hearts. Some are coming with doubts. Some are very skeptical. Maybe some uh, have shame. But this morning, God, I pray that you meet us all where we're at and help us to take another step in learning to trust in who you are and who you say we are. And so we give you this time now in your name. Amen. So I invite you to open to the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you're new to scripture, it's kind of near the end of the Bible. You're always welcome to use your phone or tablet if you prefer to, to follow scripture then, as well as we do provide extra Bibles in the back of the room on the tables. If you do not have one, you're welcome to take that as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. 
So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, this morning what I want to do is we're going to take it just verse by verse. Instead of reading the whole section and going back around, we're going to just go through it one at a time. And, and one of the reasons that we like to read and study through scriptures verse by verse here as we gather together is because we want to practice it essentially of what we um, encourage all of you to do throughout the week, and that's engage in scripture kind of on your own throughout the week. And so we'll ask some questions that they're fair game questions, and they're ones we want you to kind of interact with and to ask when you're reading on your own. So let's begin in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's writing to this church in Philippi. It's in in, in, uh, what's modern-day Greece. And it's a gathering of Christians that are new to the faith. They're growing. And he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Now let's stop right there. There's a couple things. First, when he says finally, as you might have noticed, it's, it's halfway through the book. So this is like when a preacher says finally. So it, it's not really meaning it's you know, the last thing he has to say. There could be another half hour to go. And, and so, but this is a finally, I, I want you to, we're ending that thought, but we're gonna continue on and, and keep talking. And he says, I, I want you to know to rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you again is no trouble to me. So whenever you get to something like this where he says to write this to you again, we should be asking the question, well, when did you write it before? What are you repeating? When when has this theme popped up? And so the theme of rejoice in the Lord. Paul is actually, in using this terminology, he's saying find your, this could be translated find your happiness find joy in, it could be find your significance, but it's fill yourself up with the life of the Lord, with the Lord Jesus. Let that be what fills your life as opposed to anything else. And he says, it's no trouble for me to write this to you again. Now, in the book of Philippians, we have the privilege, of, or the, actually, it, it makes it easier because this theme of rejoicing pops up time and again. In chapter 1, we see it two times where he says, I rejoice for this truth. I rejoice. And then he moves into this theme of make my joy complete by being like-minded. And there's this theme of joy that keeps popping up. But every time in the book of Philippians that we find rejoice or joy mentioned by Paul, it's in the context of find, let Christ be what gives you joy, not your circumstances. It began in the beginning when he's writing and saying, hey, I'm in prison, I'm in chains, but I can rejoice because the message of Jesus is being made known. It's not in the circumstances we're looking at, but it's in Christ. And so he then gets to this point and says, it's no trouble for me to write this to you again because I want you to remember this. I want you to know this. This is something that we should grasp, Paul is saying. So it's no trouble and it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard. It's something you need because the human heart left on our own does not turn to God for joy. We want to, but left on our own, we turn to a lot of other things. I love the phrase that uh, Matt shared with us a couple months ago. He's our young adults pastor, and he shared the the when-then principle. One of the things that we tend to do in our lives when we're looking for joy or significance, what fills us up is we do the when-then thing. When I have the house I want, then, then I'll be satisfied. When I get in a relationship that I want, then I'll be satisfied. When my kids get into the college that we want them into and a scholarship is attached, then everything will be better. 
And, and, and we can live our lives through this when-then kind of way of lead, living. And, and it's natural. It's where our hearts go. The other thing that I think we often do is, is I call it the, uh, it's the if-onlys. We, have, we also, if we're not doing when-then, it's a lot of if-only. If-only I would have studied harder in school. I, I've never said that. That was my wife. But, um, so we, but if only I would have focused more. If only I would have taken that job promotion. If only I wouldn't have taken this job. If only we would, and we as humans like to look back and, at circumstances and say, ah, oh, it could be different. If only I would have done that differently, then I could be satisfied. So we have when then, we have if only, and then I... The other one is the should-haves. You should have done this. My spouse should have fulfilled all my needs more often, and then our marriage would have been better. My kids should have listened to me more. My parents should have been better parents, and, th- and then I would have been more balanced, and I would have whatever, but we have the should-haves as well. And so left to our own devices, you can see how we naturally go to circumstances. It's just, it's just the way we are. So it makes sense that Paul is reminding his listeners that, hey, I know that you guys are good at going to when, then, or if only, or should have, but I want you to remember that none of those matter. Learn, we want to learn to rejoice, to fill ourselves up in the Lord. To fill ourselves up in the Lord. This is a safeguard to your hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything magically goes away, right? But it's a practice of understanding where we need to turn when we find our hearts going the other way. And we're going to look at that throughout this passage. So he starts off and says, I want you to know, find your fulfillment, rejoice in the Lord. It's not the circumstances. My guess is there's some people here in, this morning, here in the room this morning who the circumstances of life keep creeping up popping up in your head time and time again. You even feel like you got beyond it and then out of the blue, you're reminded of circumstances. And then you're brought back to that place of maybe either uh, fear, maybe it's um, some feelings of even depression or hopelessness or whatever it is. And it's natural. So Paul's saying, hey, I want, this is a process of us learning the safeguard. So he says, okay, so rejoice in the Lord. Now, he changes gears. So Paul gives us a formula for life. And again, just because we say I rejoice in the Lord doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens to me. And it doesn't mean that when something bad happens, I say, you know what, praise God, life is good, it's okay. No, things that are hard are still hard. But it's where do we find the significance? And we'll look at this. So Paul gives us a new formula for life. And then he jumps into chapter, or verse two and things change pretty quickly. So he says, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Verse two, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. That's a nice change of of (laughs) language right away, huh? So if you're reading this on your own, you should ask the question, who are the dogs? (laughs) Who are the evil workers? What is going on here? What is the false circumcision? That doesn't sound good. (laughs) We'll move on quickly. All right, so (laughs) verse three, he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul starts, first he gives us a formula, then he says, hey, I want you to be aware of an idea that's out there. In, In 
kind of biblical studies terms, we call these, there's a group of people called the Judaizers. And this is a group of Jews who, who welcomed Jesus in. They said, okay, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he did fulfill the prophets. Maybe he is the one sent by God. And he's come here and he did die on a cross. Okay, maybe Jesus is real. But they said, okay, so if you're going to follow Jesus, you still need to make sure that you are fulfilling the requirements of God. You're fulfilling a law, the law. You're doing what is right. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we hear about these people. I'll read it for you. It says this in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, and they began saying this. This is what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, which is the Old Testament law, you cannot be saved. So they were literally teaching, okay, maybe you follow Jesus, but unless you follow the law in the Old Testament, you cannot be saved. God is not going to save you. Jesus is not enough for your life. And they had a different formula that was to have Jesus plus something else they thought would fulfill them. Now, a couple things about that to understand. When they talk about the law, we often, there's a common misconception that we believe that sometimes we will say the Old Testament is about law and its works and it's about God's mercy and justice. But the New Testament, when Jesus is in existence, is about grace and faith and God's work. But that's misunderstanding scripture. And that's why Paul calls these people the false circumcision. Because it's true that there were laws that we read in the Old Testament, but the laws and circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with them. It was an outward sign. That never saved them from their sins. It was never what saved them. It was a mark of a covenant. But what saved them was God's grace through their faith. We learn in Genesis chapter 12 when God has his first interaction we're introduced to Abraham who's known as the father of the nation of Israel. And he calls him because of God's call on his life, not Abraham's works. And Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 15 of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham and it is a one-way covenant. God makes a promise to Abraham that's all on him. God says, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, I'm held accountable. God says that. And it says in verse 15, or 7 of chapter 15 in Genesis, it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it was never, and this is before circumcision. That happened a little bit later. So it was never the act, it was never the law that saved people. So when these Judaizers are teaching Christians and saying, okay, there's Jesus, but you have to also follow the law or you cannot be saved, Paul's saying, you don't even get, you don't even understand your own scriptures. The false circumcision. And he compares it to, he says, we are the true circumcision. circumcision. And there's a, a spiritual thing going on, which by the way, if you're ever bored and want to study circumcision throughout the Bible, you know, I mean, who wouldn't? Um, there's, it, it's often used in circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual thing. That, pops, that theme pops up over and over again. So Paul alludes to that and says, we worship God, worship by the Spirit of God. It's what's being transformed 
It's not our traditions or external rights. He says we glory in Christ Jesus. We find our satisfaction in Christ. We don't find our satisfaction in the demands of the law or being holy because we somehow fulfilled everything that God told us to do. And he says we have no confidence in the flesh. So Paul says they have the wrong formula. They have the wrong formula. They're saying Jesus plus something. But now Paul wants to take it a step further. Let's pick it up in verse, the end of verse three. He says, but we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse four, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So Paul's saying, but let's just take a moment and, and play your game. If you want to say it's about what you do on the outside, Paul says, it's not about that. But if it were to be about that, let me just, let's play your game for a while and look at my life. So Paul says this in verse four. If anyone has put their mind to have confidence in the flesh, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, that's exactly as commanded in the law, of the nation of Israel. So he's uh, of Israeli birth. He's, he's a Hebrew. He's been in the lineage, so his ancestry. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. One of the tribes that did not desert the nation when they divided was the tribe of Benjamin. So he's saying, hey, I'm even of that tribe. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My parents were Hebrews. They raised me as a Hebrew. I speak Hebrew. I pray in Hebrew. I understand it culturally. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. So the first part of this was all about what was given to him. I was born into this. I am one of God's chosen people. But now, according to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest sect of religious leaders who said, we will fulfill the law in its perfection. And when we talk about law, let's take it in very general terms, is think of it as the Ten Commandments in the most general of terms. And the Pharisees looked through Scripture and found, well, there's about 617 laws that help you fulfill the Ten Commandments. So if you follow those 617, it'll keep you safe on fulfilling those Ten Commandments. Now, modern day, we've got to the point where there's thousands and thousands of laws, and they're still being added as culture changes. Those laws tell you how to follow the 617 laws that tell you how to follow the 10 laws of God. My wife and I and boys lived in Israel for a year, and we lived in an apartment where we had to keep the kosher law, which meant uh, one of the, the things where we couldn't have meat and dairy uh, mixed together. It's against their regulations. It's actually not very biblical necessarily, but um, it, it has now become a law. We had a sink for meat dishes and a sink for dairy dishes. We had dairy dishes and meat dishes. We had dairy pots and meat pots. And uh, we actually started a tradition there where we did Mexican food nights. And Mexican food without cheese is, to me, it's just not Mexican food because Mexican food is American. So anyway, so so we actually, when we'd invite people over, so we had to tell everyone, okay, so we have a plastic tablecloth that we'd put on our table and say, you can't put the dairy on your food until you're on the plastic tablecloth in our kitchen away from everything else to keep kosher. I don't think that probably was still kosher, but it was our way of trying to be kosher. So you can see that when you make laws to follow laws to follow laws, you start to get lost. Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee. That was my life because we didn't want to miss anything. Some of you in here are rule keepers. You can relate to Paul. You are, I shouldn't have my hand up right now because I'm not one, but some of you, 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 you like, you're, 
you're relating to Paul right now, right? You go, black and white, tell, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. That's fine. That was Paul. So he says, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, do you want to know if I was serious about this? I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, I was blameless. So Paul said, if you want to play the game of Jesus plus something, I've got you all beat. Let's just start there. But then Paul changes the tone and gives us a new formula. Because Paul had everything. But Paul said, basically is saying, everything without Jesus equals nothing. In verse 7, he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I now count loss for the sake of Christ. See, I had everything, but without Jesus, they were nothing. It's nothing. He moves on. More than that, I count all things a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I count all those things but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This word rubbish is a strong word. It's actually, we get the scientific word for dung from this word. And in seminary, we thought that was funny because it's the closest thing you could have to cussing when you're in seminary. So, you know, you'd say the Greek form of this. But so this is, he's saying, this is, I'm, I'm so glad that there's two of us who think that's funny. That is just good. So seminary humor is not funny. I confess it right now. So, but yeah, we were, it, he says, it is waste. It is worthless compared to knowing Christ. And he says this, I count all things lost. And now we want to we grasp these three phrases and, and go a little deeper on them. Everything I've had in my life, everything that I added up to, all of my righteousness, all of my following the law, all of my pedigree, everything that made me who I was, Paul says, I want to count, count as loss that I may, and there's three phrases, one, so that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness derived from the law, but which one is in, uh, through faith in Christ. And in verse 10, that I may know him. So let's back up and Paul gives us a new formula that says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he wants us to see what, is this, what do we find when we find our significance in Jesus plus nothing. And he says there's three things, and the first one is this, that we may gain Christ. Paul says the point, I want to count everything lost so that I may gain Christ. Now, notice this. He didn't say, I give up all things. There's a movement, there's some really popular Christian books out there that kind of call Christians to say, hey, if you're serious about your faith, you'll be willing, you'll give up all your possessions, all of your money, you'll give up everything, you'll quit your job for the sake of Christ. Now, some of you, that might be the call that God has for your life. But I don't believe that's a call for everybody. And let's not think that what, G what Paul is asking us to do or Jesus says is you have to give up and th give away everything. Should we hold it loosely and be willing to? Yes. But there's a movement that almost says you're not spiritual enough unless you do. Paul doesn't say that. He says, I count it all loss. I no longer find my value or significant in these things. I used to be able to stand before people and say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know the law, I teach the law, I follow it. This gives me my value. And he says, you know what? That is nothing. I want to lay that aside that I may gain Christ. 
I want to gain Christ. What does he mean by this? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 through 26, Jesus is speaking and he says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world yet you lose your soul? I am not reaching down to my shoe because I said soul. My, just, my t- shoe's untied, so there you What would it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? He said, and then Jesus said, what would you give in exchange for your soul? You see, we often, and, and Jesus presents us with this idea of, do you want the whole world, but you're giving up on this identity, this life that is found in Christ? What do you hold there? Jesus is even putting it before us. And saying, where do you find your significance? Is it in eternal things? If you continue to find your significance in the external, you're going to miss out on the freedom and the peace that's given to you by God, by a friendship with God. When we gain Christ, when we have our identity in Him, there's freedom there. I... um, Worked for a church here a while back, and it was a church that went through some conflict. Um, you've probably heard about it because it's the only church it ever happened to. Um, and so th- this church went through some internal conflict, and eventually um, it led to a, a, basically a church split. We like to call it a church plant, but um, so... It, but, but we had these, like, these gatherings when everyone would come together and, and share their feelings, and, and it got kind of ugly, but I, at the time I was the youth pastor, and so the youth pastor usually has the luxury of just simply, hey, I'm going off to Hume Lake, leave me alone, I'm doing my job, and, and they just kind of just let you do your thing. But at one point, some people started pulling us into it, the youth ministry, and, and because there was just this spirit of division that they needed to find other things to divide about, and that's how it felt. And there was even some hurtful things said about me, and I was looking around like, I don't even know who you are. How, is this? how am I a part of this all of a sudden? And, and for me, I remember just kind of looking at my wife, and we certainly were saying, we've got to get out of here. We need to find a new place to work. Should we even stick around in the ministry? And, and it's one of those, you start to believe what you hear, even though they were unfounded, and you're like, that's not even true. But you start to believe it because it was the external. And one night after one of these meetings, uh, one of the church leaders came up to me and just said, hey, Ryan, I just want you to know whatever you hear about you is not true, but what I know about you is what God says. And here's what he says about you. And he, he just reminded me of who I am in Christ. He said, that's what I care about. That's who I listen to. And so you need to just rest in that. And that's what it means when we gain Christ. We have somewhere else where we rest, someone else to rest in an identity that's found not in the external. So Paul says, I count these things lost so I may gain Christ. Look at this next one. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul is saying, hey, I want to know Jesus because I want to be found in him and found this righteousness. Now that's a big churchy word. Let's define it. And a simple way to understand it is a right relationship with God. Your relationship with God is right. He's made it right. And Paul says that is found in Christ because of what he has done. In Romans chapter 3, I have these verses on the screen for you. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through Let's go to 24, says this. Now, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so every mouth will be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. 
Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no, that's no human, can be justified in its sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness, so this right relationship with God, has been made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is a lot of church, churchy theological words. Justified, righteousness. This is, this is essential to what, how we understand our life in Christ. All of your sins, all of your actions in the past, present, and future are taken care of in the work of Jesus Christ. And you can find your right relationship with God is based on what Jesus has done and not what you have done and what you will do. Is that good news to anyone? <laughs> I mean, I, I hear that and I think, I think it's such a great idea that it's God's work that gives me a good relationship with him. Because if it's my work, I might make it to 1145 on a Sunday morning, but talk to me by 5 p.m., well, I probably will think it. Talk to my wife by 5 p.m. what she thinks if I've made it. <laughs> so we need the work of Christ to give us that right relationship. Jesus, Paul says, I want to count all things lost and be found in Jesus. I want to be found in him. Having that relationship with God that's based on his works. And Paul, I mean, if I was comparing myself to him and righteousness, you'd say, oh, if that's the standard, how many, of you, how many of you have ever had a friend that you looked at as a Christian, you said, if you're the standard, I'm in trouble. <laughs> we were at a conference a couple weeks ago and, and one person said that sometimes in discipleship in the church, we always, we, highlight, we, we have this picture of like the Christian Navy SEAL. Like that's, that's what we make it look like. This is what you gotta attain to. And most of us look at that and say like, I don't, I don't think I can be a Christian Navy SEAL. But that's when it's based on work. In Christ Jesus, you can find your justification. Your sins are wiped clean. Your relationship with God is made on his works. And then, now, here's the next part, though. Does it stop there? Then Paul said, I count all things lost. After I'm found in him, I want so that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now this isn't saying Paul wants to die for Christ, although he said earlier he's willing to, but being conformed to his death, to share in his sufferings, this fellowship of the resurrection. He's talking about, I want my life to be so caught up in Christ that the power of his resurrection is seen in and through my life. That's what's at work changing and shaping who I am. It's not what's at work to make me right before God. That's what Jesus has done. But now the power of the resurrection work in me and changes me into a new, totally new type of person. Yes, that is good. Are you woohooing because I'm being changed into a new type of person? Yeah, you should. It's a good, it's a, it's a process. I'm on, I'm on track, but it's got a, I've got a ways to go. <laughs> Romans chapter six Picking up in verse four, Paul says this. Therefore, we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. Christ rose from the dead. That power is available that we may have newness of life. 
For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, again, this is spiritually speaking, certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. We have a new life. We're raised. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. When we are found in Christ, when we're sharing in the fellowship of, the res- of, of partnering with God and experiencing the power of the resurrection, we have new life. Now I've shared a few times about my process of experiencing new life and how the old dies and there's a- examples of my old life that pop up from time to time. So I thought, you guys always like to go, man, you're messed up. I just want to encourage you that way, so I'll share another story. Uh, at our old house where we used to live, our street... We, our front yard is like as big as the stage. I don't know if any of you live in that kind of neighborhood. So you're like right there, and then you have the street, and then your neighbors are pretty much almost in your front yard anyway. But it's a pretty small neighborhood, but great place to live. And we had really little kids at the time, and we'd play out front because there's really nowhere else to play. So you play in the street, everything you do. And I had a pet peeve of cars that would drive down the street too fast. And... and you know, once you become a parent, you start, I realize like, oh, my dad wasn't crazy yelling at everybody, you know. But, so they would come down the street, and if I thought it was too fast, and I was out there playing with my kids, I would do all kinds of godly things, like if we were playing basketball, and they'd get in front, start to come to us, I would like roll the ball in front of their car. Maybe I would hit the side of their car and be like, oh, well, you know, if you weren't going too fast, that wouldn't have hit you. Um, just anything to kind of scare them. Well, one time a car went by, and, and I, he was going super fast, and I went out there and yelled at him, and I got in the street, and I raised my hands like, what's up? Come on. I know. I know. I don't know. It felt right at the moment. <laughs> and he, he, he drove past me, and he stops, opens his door, and he gets out and looks at me, and I'm like this. And I'm like, okay, now what? <laughs> my kids are watching me, and I'm standing there looking at him, and I'm thinking, Am I going to fight this guy because he drove too fast? Like, but if he comes, what else am I supposed to do? Like, he's going to drive. I have to stop him now. And so I'm having this moment like, okay, maybe I went like one step too far this time. And he looked at me and I'm like, you're going to kill my kids, you know. And then, and he kind of just saw me for a minute, got back in his car and drove away. And I thought, okay, I I don't know. I I was sizing him up. I thought I could take him. I had my two boys, there was like six and four, I think the three of us, we had them. So, <laughs> but those are examples of that, that moment where this anger comes up and, and there's no reason, but it's old life. It's old life. It's old life. And the more and more we share with the resurrection of Jesus and experience resurrected life, my reaction, I'm still frustrated when people drive fast. I don't want them to put my kids or any kids in danger, but there's a different response. There's a different way. There's a gracious side of me. There's a different way that's not saying, okay, I'm going to beat you up. The old life dies. I want to invite the worship team to start making their way up. I believe when Paul is writing this, he's presenting us with a choice here today, or a question at least, for us to process. And that is, when you look at your life, where are you finding your significance? Where are you finding your value? Where are you placing what gives you your worth for the day? Is it in the external? Is it in maybe the things you've accomplished, or maybe even more, is it in your spirituality? 
Is it because you read the Bible five days this week and so God, I'm right before you? Or maybe you're finding yourself in a constant struggle and battle because your significance is you're resting it in what other people, how they value you or what they say about you. Maybe this morning for some of you, it's you're wrestling with this part of your old life. You aren't sharing and experiencing the power of the resurrection in your life. You keep having the same thing creep up and you, there's a battle within. And this morning, maybe God is challenging some of you to turn to Christ for that significance. And maybe this morning, God's asking you to say, would you trust the power of my life in you to change you? Would you be willing to let that old you die and the new you live? What is it for you this morning that God's speaking to you? Maybe for some of you, it's just you've been resisting him. And you showed up here, maybe with a family member, maybe a friend. And this morning, God's saying, would you quit resisting me? Would you find your life in me? I've been pursuing you. I love you. I want to call you my child and welcome you in. What is it you need to lay down today? What will it look like for you to be found in him this morning? And so as we end with this final song, our, the question we're just presented with is, where are we finding our hope? Where are we finding our peace? Where are we finding our significance? And anything other than Christ, it's not enough. Anything other than Christ doesn't work. Not long term. So this morning, can we embrace this idea that Jesus plus nothing is everything? And everything without Jesus is nothing. Let's be people who find who we are in all that God has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning that you... Look beyond the external. I thank you that you're at work to change our internal so that the external looks different. I thank you for that too. But I thank you that it's based on your works. I thank you that it's based on your goodness. I thank you that it's based on your spirit at work in us and not based on our works. And Lord, in this room this morning, I pray that for anyone who's wrestling with the truth about you this morning, would you draw them a step closer? And Lord, maybe those who are already following you but struggling with their, their walk, God, would you remind them of their identity in you and would you let them experience just a little bit of that power of the resurrection that's at work to live a new life this morning? God, we give you this time, and as we respond in this last song, Lord, let this song be a, our prayer to you, our confession to you, that we want our lives based on you and you alone. So we thank you for this song.